everybody. Welcome to Science in Podcast. This is our podcast, us being me, Madison Dix, and me, Jared Adelman. Hello. So this podcast, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> is brought to you by Science in Pictures magazine, and we are here to help you take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. Our brand us, new it's not catchphrase. Yeah, our brand new updated catchphrase. Um, so with us, there's no reading, only listening, hopefully laughing. Hopefully. <laughs> there we will try. be from us. We'll see. Definitely from us. We, we amuse ourselves quite a lot. And hopefully you. So as you may or may not know, as you know if you've listened before, and if you have listened before, welcome back. Thanks, uh, guys. We are doing, thank you so much. Um, we are featuring Black scientists this month because for us, it is still Black History Month. Um, we post our recordings a little bit after we record them. So you're going to hear our Black History Month episodes well into March and probably beyond that too, because we're finding some really incredible work by the Black scientists that we have been researching. Um, if you like what you've been hearing so far, please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That's the way that people actually get to see us uh, when they go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever they get their podcasts. Um, uh, quick update on that. I actually changed the podcast mm -hmm. to just science and podcast because it was a little complicated to do like the whole sci-fi present science and podcast. So if you're trying to find it, it's just science and podcast now. Same picture though. Oh, yes. If you made it, um, if you made it this far through our first name change, thank you so much. We appreciate you. <laughs> um, we are a, an itty bitty baby podcast, just just a seedling, just barely peeking out of the dirt. Um, but we hope you like it, um, and we hope you want to share. We have a lot of fun doing friends. it. Yeah, we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, we love to talk about science, and this week we have some pretty cool science to tell you about. It's all about climate change and adaptation in land management. Doesn't that sound spicy? It sounds spicy and interesting simultaneously. Delightful. And <laughs> as always, before we launch into actually talking about the article and the scientist who published it, uh, we're going to have to figure out some uh, some nonsense that we'd like to squash. Isn't that right, Oh, Jer? so there's nonsense to squash. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's always nonsense to squash um, because... Anytime there's a true fact out there, there's also a million other not true versions of that fact. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so, so <laughs> this is a section that we like to call 321-squash-in-nonsense. Perfect. Yeah. Second week in a row. All right. Um, <laughs> all right. You ready to hear about my nonsense? I do want to hear about your nonsense, Jared. Cool. I have two slightly separate nonsenses, uh, not as separate as they might seem, but uh, yeah. So the first nonsense that I would like to squash um, surrounds the beast that is climate change, because of course there's, of course, there's nonsense about climate change. Of course. Um, yeah. So I found a really cool article from uh, a nonprofit called the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, and it is oh, called yeah. Realities Versus Misconceptions About Climate Change Science. Mm, I think I've read this before. Have you? Well, mm -hmm. um, that's good, because I hadn't heard of at least three of these, and I was pretty interested to see that this was an argument that people were making against climate change. And I'm also really happy that I know what to say to 
uh, negate them now because none of this actually makes sense in the concept of reality. But uh, that brings us well, to- Well, please, Jared, share with us what you've learned. Indeed. So number one, uh, the first one I had not heard until reading, uh, is the misconception that the recent warming on Earth is caused by the sun. Madison, is this, uh, <laughs> how do you feel about this? Oh, uh, um, no. Um, I, I, I get where this one is coming from. There's, there's been a lot of nonsense out there looking at parallels between the frequency of solar flares um, and uh, trends in warming. Um, however, it's bullshit. Exactly. So it is true yeah. in a literal sense. Like the sun is the only thing keeping Earth from being a cold, dead rock. But yeah. like you said, the sun is not to blame for recent climate change. And we know this because scientists That's have like been actively- blaming, That's like blaming birth for death. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the same logic. But um, yeah. so climate scientists have had some pretty sophisticated tools in the past 50 years or so. And so they've actually been actively monitoring the sun's temperature for around the past four to five decades when Earth has been warming the fastest, coincidentally. So the sun does go through this weird 11-year cycle that can alter Earth's temperatures by around 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit. But as you know, those 0.2 degrees are nowhere near enough to account for how much hotter it's really gotten in the past 50 or so years. Ooh, yeah, we've gotten a lot more than 0.2. Uh -huh. In fact, it's almost a full two degrees, which is... Yep. Yeah, worse. Um, cool. Yep. So, number two. Uh, this one gets my goat. The climate is always changing, or it has changed many times in the past, before humans began burning coal and oil. So there is no reason to believe that humans are causing warming today. Uh, yeah, it's another one of those blaming birth for death kind of situations. Mm -hmm. Like, yes... Our, the Earth's climate has changed many times over the geologic timeline, um, but very, very slowly. Even the meteor event that caused the last extinction, the one that killed the dinosaurs, the, the one we all know about, um, that did not change the climate as quickly as we are changing it right now. Um, this argument is not made by scientists. It's made by people misunderstanding science. Right. It's also straight up propaganda in a lot of instances uh, put forth by, uh, you know, the fossil fuel industry and all the people that benefit from the Yeah, thing it's, it's aggressive disinformation. Um, yep. There's also some really hard science to go against this as well, which is that, well, this one has spread so quickly because there is an inkling of truth to it, like you said. Earth's climate mm -hmm. does change all the time. Um, but in addition to knowing that the climate's changed, scientists can also tell with certainty whether that carbon came from a newer source, like plant decomposition, or a human-made source, like the burning of fossil fuels. See, carbon, like any element, has a lot of different isotopes, or versions that can be more stable than others, but they vary in weight because they have different amounts of neutrons in their core. There's one isotope that's really important, and that's called carbon-14. Mm -hmm. heard, heard of this one? I have, I have, yes. but I bet our listeners haven't, or maybe they have. Y'all are smart, right? All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> smart um, so carbon-14 is something that can really only come from a relatively recent source, because carbon-14 doesn't really last past around 50,000 years. It, it decays past that point. That is why, in part, carbon-14 is used to date things in the realm of 50,000 years and to the present. That's so, why it's called carbon dating. Exactly. But fossil fuels that are millions of years old are not going to have any more carbon-14 left. So when you're burning fossil fuels, it's only going to release usually carbons-13 and 12, which are the ones that plants use primarily. 
So what we're seeing right now is in drastically increasing levels of carbons 13 and 12, but not really carbon 14. That means the source is ancient, um, and the ancient source uh, could really only ever be fossil fuels because there's nothing else that could explain it. Yeah, there's nothing else that's literally digging into the earth, finding liquid dinosaurs and setting them on fire. That's just us. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then other people could say, oh, maybe it's recent volcanism. But um, there has been- Oh, by been... the way, volcanism, just to be clear, has nothing to do with Star Trek. We're talking about volcanoes. Oh, yes, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, we know that volcanism is uh, contributing to the atmosphere. Uh, it CO2 levels, it is, but it also has carbon-14 in it because it's a recent event. Also, yep. we know based on measuring it that the level uh, of carbon being released from the burning of fossil fuels is over 60 times more than what volcanoes release each year. And that yep. is probably a gross underestimation. Yeah. Um, and once again, um, climate changes that have occurred from volcanic eruptions, um, you can tell it's from the volcano because either everything is covered in ash or there's a giant cloud blocking out the sun, neither of which is happening right now. Exactly. Plus the primary yeah. climate change um, things that happen from, from volcanoes are short-term, which, you know, nope. also doesn't explain it. Um, nope. But yeah, there is virtually no peer-reviewed data from climate scientists that can explain modern climate change without factoring in the burning of fossil fuels. In other words, it is the burning of fossil fuels that is the main cause of climate change. Scientists have proven it. It is. Fossil fuels followed by the clearing of forest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and the clearing of forest being because forests are the things that reabsorb that carbon dioxide. Um, exactly. They literally so. take the gas and they put it in their plant bones. Yep. So that's also us. Um, mm -hmm. There's no animal going around. Like beavers aren't that industrious. It's us. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot blame climate change on beavers, people. No, you cannot. Um, Please don't. <laughs> no, they're trying their best. They've um, been through enough. <laughs> oh boy, we have something to talk about with beavers later. Um, mm -hmm. Number three, they were hunted for absurd reasons. But um, number three, the world has been cooling for the past decade. Um, or any other arguments using data on short-term trends of temperature. Madison, you want to take this one? Oh, wait, cooling for the past decade? So basically equating climate with weather and using recent yeah, trends I, in I, weather I or short-term trends. I was just making sure you said decade because it cut out for a second. Oh, sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure I understood that correctly before I commented on it. Um, yeah, like you said, that's there's a difference between weather and climate. Climate has to be, it's, it's, it's um, measuring weather cycles over a much longer period. And so to say that the climate has changed in the last 10 years is, that's not a real thing that you can say because climate takes 30 years to measure. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. for on that same point, all of the data from 30 years plus shows overwhelmingly warming and only warming. Yeah. Um, um, you can point to specific regions and say, like right now people are saying, well, it's really cold in Texas. My deepest sympathies to people and animals in Texas, by the way. But people are saying it's really cold in Texas, so global warming must must not be a thing. And it's like that's why we've rebranded it from global warming to climate change because the warming isn't the effect that you're going to feel. Uh, the warming is the warming of the overall surface temperature of Earth. So that change is just such, on such a broad scale, you're not going to feel it in your own skin. But what happens as a result? 
of that warming is weather patterns are changing and becoming more unpredictable. So it being colder than normal is actually evidence that climate change is happening. Does that make exactly. sense? Exactly. Yes. No, that, yeah, that makes exact yeah. sense. It makes me think about this mm -hmm. video I saw recently and I really like the way that they put this, but basically it's, you can't really, you, you can think of the CO2 in the atmosphere as heat trapping, but you can also think of increasing levels of CO2 as increased entropy, which is chaos. If you put more chaos into the system, it's going to become really unpredictable and it's going to get really extreme sometimes in the wrong times and places. Yep. Yep. So yeah, to those who argue against climate change by saying the weather in this area, which they call climate, has gotten colder in the last 10 years, unfortunately, that is, well, bull yeah, it's, it's, it's scientifically false, yeah. um, but yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. ooh, and that actually brings us to number four. Uh, there is no scientific consensus on the existence or causes of global climate change, which, again, <sighs> not at all correct, and it hasn't been correct for decades. Um, so there was a survey, I think it took place in around 2013, uh, could have really only increased since then, but the survey basically uh, asked scientists from any field, and 82% of all scientists uh, accepted human activity as the primary driver. Among climate scientists, and this is the important part because they're the ones actually trained to interpret climate data, 97% agree. Yeah, and then the other 3% work for fossil fuel companies. So. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I would look for a few yeah. conflicting interests in those studies of theirs. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, the narrative of a climate change debate in the scientific community is simply not happening in any meaningful or constructive way. It just, it's nope. not. Yeah. Um, and I, it's really interesting to me that that first survey that said it was 80% was surveying scientists of all fields. Um, that makes me wonder about surveys that say this percent of scientists say blah, blah, blah. Because if you ask like, a microbiologist who studies like this one protein in the gut of this one tiny animal about anything other than that, they're probably not going to know that much about it. <laughs> exactly. I've actually read yeah. quite a few um, sort of like, so like scientists can post like opinion pieces in uh, scientific literature journals and it sort of counts as like an op-ed. I don't really know what to technically call it. But there's been a lot of scientists who aren't climate scientists over the decades doing that exact thing, claiming what they know from their field uh, can explain the change in climate. But it just doesn't line up with reality, unfortunately. It just doesn't. Yeah, that's that's strange. That's like um, trusting a doctor to give you accurate information about um, how to remove glitter from your face. I don't know. Like something yeah, completely unrelated. Like, if you see a statistic um, that says like four or five doctors think apples are bad, you should see what they have a doctorate in because it might just be like philosophy. Oh, that's a good point. See, when I said that, I was thinking like if you asked a medical doctor about, I'm trying to think something a medical doctor wouldn't know anything about. And I've forgotten Pyramids. all of the things. Pyramids. I've forgotten everything. Pyramids. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another scientific thing though. Well, yeah. So if you asked a medical doctor for their scientific opinion on how old the oldest pyramid is, unless they just happen to also have a doctorate in Egyptology, then they're not going to know. <laughs> so I was actually thinking of the real life example, Dr. Ben Carson, who is a politician oh, and neurosurgeon Jesus. who also mm -hmm. genuinely believes that the pyramids were made to store grain. Like, okay. he's a very, very, very smart person, but smart people can still be really wrong sometimes. 
if they don't know what they're talking about in that instance. Yeah, for instance, uh, I'm pretty smart, wrong about a lot of things a lot of the time. You know why I'm wrong about things? It's because I run my mouth about things that I don't know anything about. That's when I'm wrong about <laughs> things. <laughs> Which is exactly what happened in uh, a lot of instances that are not just you and not nearly just you. Yeah, um, the good thing about you and me, that, though, Jared, is that we're upfront about when we don't know about things. Yeah, I said it before, I'm, I'm very stupid and, like, I'm, I'm good at science, but I'm not good at, like, I... I would never call you I, stupid, I but... I would never say that you know everything either, and neither would you, and that's a good thing. Please don't ask me about sports or anything like that, because I just wouldn't know what to say. Um, I think it's a thing that you do with other people, but that's as far as I got. One of my favorite quotes that, by the way, cannot be attributed to any one person, because apparently it's been around forever, is, oh, yeah. <laughs> the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. Ah, I like that a lot. Yeah. Something I think about quite a bit. Beware the people uh, that claim they know everything. Yes. So exactly. I have one more. Uh, no, number... We went down a real rabbit hole. Okay, yes, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> no worries. Uh, I feel like that happens every episode, so, you know, it's fine. Um, sure. Number five, scientists predicted global cooling in the 1970s. Since they were wrong about that, there is no reason to believe they are right about global warming. Now, this is one I've actually not heard before, um, and I'm going to guess it's a lot more common in older generations that were alive during the 70s. But uh, Madison, where do you think this came from? Um, I've heard a similar argument like this, where people have said something along the lines of, oh, okay, but I was here when it was all about the hole in the ozone, and that appears to have gone away, so why isn't this just going to go away? Um, and my answer to that is, it's not about the ozone because we found out the cause of the ozone was chlorofluorocarbons, also known as CFCs, that are in aerosols. And so we took the CFCs out of the aerosols, and that's why we don't have that problem. Yup. So, yeah. <laughs> it's not because they were wrong, it's because we solved it. So, is the cooling thing a similar thing? Or... Well, it's actually about a debate that never happened. Oh, well, great. So, yeah, so um, in the 1970s, I think it was the late 1970s, there were a bunch of ice cores drawn from Greenland, and the data just kind of prompted researchers to speculate, only speculate, when the next glacial maximum or ice age would occur, but no consensus was ever actually raised on the subject. In fact, oh, okay. yep, uh, between 1965 and 1979, a total of 73 peer-reviewed papers were published on the subject of global warming or cooling. Um, and only 12% argued in favor of, of, of a cooling trend back in 1979. On the okay. other hand, 60% of the papers argued uh, that their data pointed towards warming and the remainder saw a neutral or net zero change. So 40 years ago, or I think this article is like 10 years old, so almost 50 years ago, the majority of the scientific community had already accepted human activity as the root cause of modern climate change. That consensus has only strengthened in the years since. Yeah, it sounds like when they were looking at this ice, were they looking back at like geologic time of warming yes. and freezing and, and then just trying to figure out the Earth's natural cycles? Essentially, yes. So that makes sense to me that they might like predict that the next cycle would be cooling, but that, oh, oh shit, that's not happening because we fucked it up. <laughs> yeah, there's also a thing in a lot of scientific papers where in the discussion section, uh, where most of the speculating is done, they'll mm -hmm. say a lot of like, potentially really off-base statements just to spur other scientists to actually put the time in to investigate them. So that very well could have happened as oh, well, just like a discussion Trixie. session saying, maybe the next ice age will happen in 20 years, which, you know, hasn't happened, so. 
Yeah. <laughs> that is that is interesting. That also gets me thinking about um, something that we talked about on an episode that we never published because of bad recording, but um, <laughs> the law of rumor. Do you remember talking about that? I do, yes. I don't remember the specifics, so tell mm-hmm. me. So, like, the spreadability or how quickly and widely a rumor will spread um, can be boiled down to a pretty simple equation. It's the spreading of the rumor is equal to the ambiguity of the com- of the content, as in how hard it is to figure out if it's true or not, um, and that a lot of times comes from mixing fact with fiction or not knowing whether or not you can trust the source. So ambiguity is one side of the equation, times multiplication multiplied by um, the emotional weight of the statement, um, how much people care about it. Um, so the reason that came into my mind is because the idea of these scientists you know, putting rumors essentially um, in the discussion section of their paper to make their paper spread faster. Um, and something like, is this the next ice age? So that's something that's it's hard to figure out if that's true or not, because it's not really connected that much to the data in their paper. And it's definitely emotionally charged because no one wants an ice age. Exactly. I think <laughs> it's a big one statement. thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that would spread pretty quickly. So that's a good good strategy on that scientist's part to get their paper to spread. Exactly. And for people who are trying to sort of wade through that, I think one of the good indicators to whether it's wild speculation or not is to look if they cited anything after that sentence. Because if they didn't, then they're just quoting themselves. Yeah. Although, if you only ever quote other people, how do we get new ideas? This is true. I kind of backed myself into a recorder here, so let's just keep going. You did. Because <laughs> you're talking to... So Jared comes from a science background, folks, and I come from an arts background. Um, and so we're the opposite sides of the same equation, which is... Um, well, not the same equation, but I see the arts and the sciences as both a search for truth and meaning and answers to questions and exploration and curiosity, uh, but two different approaches. With science, it's all about measurements and figuring out what you can prove what you can know or be certain of and with the arts it's taking looking at those things asking questions and extrapolating or imagining the things that we aren't able to test what can we not know what might be out there as the incorrect quote goes science imitates art <laughs> it does though yeah life imitates art art imitates life it's mm-hmm. it's sort of the same with with the arts and the sciences the sciences say hey we figured out we know this and then the arts say oh oh so this 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 and the scientists are like whoa nelly slow down maybe get back to us in 50 years we'll figure it out <laughs> <laughs> uh, um yeah but mm-hmm. yes um wow i am Tangents real everywhere. I am, yeah <laughs> i am just call me tangent tammy tonight at least they're related this time. <laughs> That's true. But That's true. Um, <laughs> in a, a little conclusion to all of that, I think a lot of those statements come from a general distrust of climate scientists in general. But to that, mm-hmm. I will say uh, this. If you can accept that a rectangle that fits in your hand can contact someone anywhere on the planet and it's not a ghost or hoax. If you can accept that you can cruise around on land or through the sky in a synthetic box and or bird at biologically impossible speeds with a statistically reasonable chance of not dying. 
if you can walk into a hospital, maybe not right now, but if you can walk into a hospital and accept that medicine treatment and or therapy you'll get has stood the evidence-based test of time and also wouldn't kill you, please listen to what climate scientists have to say about what's happening to our planet. Because fundamentally, their science is no different from any of the others that enable modern society as a whole. Yes, snaps. Snaps for that. <laughs> Thank you. It's good. Yeah. So I have one more nonsense for you, or uh, one more cluster. Please. Um, <laughs> for this one, I uh, googled U.S. resource management. Um, well, no, I googled U.S. resource management misconceptions, and I should have said United States first, because I was given nearly two full pages of what were essentially warnings about your local HR department. Um, so that didn't work. Um, I had to get a little creative. And instead, here are a handful of statements for you, Madison, to categorize as either true or false. Ooh, my least favorite part of tests. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, number one, there are over 30 vacant homes in the United States for every homeless person. True. True. As of 2019, the U.S. had around 17 million vacant homes and 552,830 homeless people, uh, as reported by the U.S. Census Bureau in the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Which yep. is... Wow. Um, this is... I guessed something that you were maybe going to talk about in yours, so I, I, I don't want to step on your toes, but um, banks shouldn't be able to buy homes because they just hold them and this happens. That is accurate, and not something that is brought up in my article, so I'm happy you brought it up now. Very good. Um, mm -hmm. Number two, population growth will cause the world to run out of resources. <laughs> False. False. Um, according to Crystal uh, Vander Elst, head of the World Economic Forum's Strategic Foresight Team, uh, economic growth and development are by far the major drivers for future demand of resources. Uh, I quote her as saying, over the next 20 years... Estimates based on trending energy and population demand indicate that China, for example, will contribute only 4% of the world's expected population growth, but will account for almost 40% of additional energy demand. So not to say it's capitalism that's driving the demand for resources that- But know, it's capitalism. It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Glad you agree with that. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> number three. People go hungry in the United States because there simply isn't enough food to go around. False. False. Uh, according to the, uh, I think it was the USDA or the, or the FDA, one of those, uh, an estimated 30 to 40% of food is wasted in the United States alone every single year, along mm -hmm. with the water and energy put into producing it. Yes. And yeah, finally, so... Oh, 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 no, go ahead. Just to, um, so I used to work in a restaurant and um, I spend a lot of time running my mouth about climate change related things. Um, and so one time one of my coworkers came up to me and asked me if it made me sad um, having to throw out, because people never drink their water at the restaurant, they only drink their alcohol and they leave their water on the table. So she asked me- I drink me my water. It, well, you, it, you didn't go to this restaurant. I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> this was not a this was not a water drinking type of place. Um, ah. Yeah, but she asked me if it made me sad that to dump all that water down the drain because it was wasting so much water. And I told her, you know, without missing a beat, like feel a lot worse when I'm throwing away like half a leg of lamb or broccoli because of how much water was required to grow that broccoli or grow the food that fed the lamb. Um, because that's way, way, way more than just a glass of water. Like when I'm throwing away 
an unfinished plate of food that represents hundreds of gallons of water. And she was like, what? (laughs) It is a very, very, very large web full of social, economic, uh, uh, manufacturing, and a lot of different things all tying into one. Yes. Yeah. People, People rarely take the time to think about what happened before the food got to their plate or even what happened to anything before the moment that you're encountering it right now. And it's like, everything has a history. Everything has a life. Um, nothing is just what you see or get the impression of at face value. Um, so nothing should be treated as valueless. That's why insect protein is the way of the future. Uh, we can make that jump. I'm down. (laughs) (laughs) I was just ready to say it, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, because insects are the best way to get from plants to protein. They do it the most efficiently, but this is not what this is about. So oh, tell me more Tell me more things. I'm ready for the rest of my quiz. Well, number four actually has to do with food as well. And I'm glad you brought up restaurants uh, because number mm-hmm. four is that restaurants can get sued for complications from donated food. Um, true? Yes. Uh, technically true, but only because you can sue someone for literally anything. Um, for example, I could, in theory, bring you, Madison, to court for kicking my lizard. That doesn't mean that you actually did it or that the lawsuit won't be thrown out. Um, and this is generally the case for food donations that have been made in good faith, according to the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act of 1996, um, which basically protects uh, food vendors from food that that they donated, quote-unquote, in good faith, meaning that It's something that they knew uh, going in did not have anything actually wrong with it. It was just food that was going to be wasted otherwise. Um, So vendors of food, you should really donate your uneaten food without worry, uh, because there's really no lawsuits that actually happen about this. And unless you knew beforehand that the food was contaminated with something, then you can, you know. Oh, yeah, you have plausible. Yeah, you have plausible deniability. So they're not going to win that case. Okay, yeah. So like when restaurants say, oh, we can't donate to food kitchens because the food kitchens would sue us. Uh, my response would be, with what money? They're a soup kitchen. <laughs> That's another really good point. With what money? But also, you know, they're protected by the federal um, law, which is nice. Yeah. Let's get composting facilities to pick up food from, from every restaurant at the end of the night. Let's do that. And actually, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of composting companies that do that for both residences and for restaurants. Um, it's really, really cool. And there's also um, facilities even in Massachusetts that will take food waste from a restaurant and take it to plants to convert it into biofuel. Exactly. Um, which is, yeah, but, which is also really cool. Yeah. There's a ton of stuff that can be done with food that would otherwise just go to a landfill and be wasted. Which um, is a very, very, very large percentage of what actually gets put in landfills. So much of it is unused food. Yeah, exactly. Um and that's, by the way, why seagulls are always around landfills. Um, animals that you think eat trash, just speaking of squashing nonsense, animals that you think eat trash, like raccoons and seagulls, they don't eat trash. They eat the food that's in the trash. Except just to be clear. Time, except for that time that my dog literally ate my homework in second grade. Yes. Well, that's not the kind of animal I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's this? Your pets will eat trash. Wild animals are smarter than your pets. <laughs> Yeah, that is a uh, good point. That is also uh, the end of my nonsense. All right, awesome. Glad I threw a little extra nonsense in the pot. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Thank you for providing such excellent nonsense for us to squash, Jared. You are very welcome. Um, So before we dive in to my article and what will be another massive 
gushing session on my part about a really, really amazing Black scientist. Um, since we've spent so much time talking about what's not true about climate change, I'd like to do a real quick review of what is true about climate change. Because like um, you've, you've all just heard a bunch of information. And when you hear a bunch of information like that all at once, it can be hard to remember what was true and what's false. So if you're struggling with that right now, push it all out of your mind and just focus on this. Here's what causes climate change. Humans uh, have discovered deep in the earth uh, things called fossil fuels, oil, coal, natural gas, these are all fossil fuels and they are created by basically past life on our planet under the pressure of the layers of time, of geologic time on top of it, that have crushed them down into fossil fuels. So when yeah. we burn, hello? Oh no, um, I had a thought that I wasn't going to say out loud, but it's it's kind of like in that episode of Jimmy Neutron where he puts the coal in the microwave and then he does like all the pressure and the heat and then it becomes a diamond. It's kind of the same thing. Well, yeah. So if you put pressure on a on a dead dinosaur, it becomes coal. And if you put pressure on the coal, it becomes a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why I didn't say it. Yes, but we're here to talk about climate change. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're still confused, dear listeners... That's my fault, I, probably. <laughs> um, if you're laughing, then good. Okay, so laugh, get confused, and then push all that out again. We'll start here. <laughs> <laughs> so humans found out um, that if you find fossil fuels down deep in the earth, like coal, oil, and natural gas, bring them up to the surface and burn them, you can create a lot of energy. So by burning fossil fuels, that's how we run our cars. It's how we make a lot of our heat and electricity. It's how we run our factories. We also use these fossil fuels to make plastic, uh, a lot of it. Now, when these fossil fuels are burned or changed into plastic, the product that is released into the atmosphere, all up into the air, is carbon dioxide, mostly. Um, carbon dioxide is a heat-trapping gas. So you can think of it as basically adding layers to a big blanket wrapped around the Earth. Um, Earth always has a blanket, um, but it has to be the right amount of blanket. And right now, we're adding so much carbon dioxide to Earth's heat-trapping blanket that it's it's trapping too much heat. Kind of like if you were sitting in your bed on a summer day and then someone threw just a bunch of comforters on top of you. Suddenly, you get way too warm. That's what's happening to Earth right now. Luckily, there are a lot of things on our planet that actually absorb carbon dioxide that take layers of that blanket and trap it back in the ground where, where it came from. Um, forests are a big one. Um, leafy green plants trap carbon dioxide and forests do it really well. Um, our ocean um, is also something that traps a lot of carbon dioxide. And then there's uh, lots of... There have also been over the course of hundreds of millions of years, just meters and meters of stacked up shells of dead organisms that also trap carbon under the deep ocean. Yeah. Um, so that's the good news is we have a lot of things that are naturally trapping carbon. The bad news is um, we're chopping down a lot of those things. Deforestation <laughs> is a problem. And basically we're losing those carbon sinks, those things that trap the blanket um, faster than those things can continue to trap the blanket. And we're also adding to the blanket faster than what we have left is trapping it. So that's what's causing climate change. Um, 
And it's, it's a big problem because as we discussed earlier, um, when all of this heat gets trapped, it doesn't make us all feel personally hot, but it makes the earth warmer. Like the ground under our feet is warmer. So we can't feel that, but that warming is causing changes in weather all over the planet that are becoming less and less predictable. Um, and also our oceans are warming. So ecosystems are changing. Everything is changing. That's why we call it climate change. Now, the title of my article this week is United States Natural Resources and Climate Change, Concepts and Approaches for Management Adaptation, which probably doesn't sound super sexy, but let me tell you about the amazing people involved in this literature review. So, I mean, there's a lot of them, but the person who I have been obsessed with for a long time and the reason I chose this article is Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Have you ever heard of this person, Jared? I have heard this name before. All right. So Ayana Johnson is an incredible scientist, an incredible science communicator, and just the prime example of Black excellence. Um, You can follow Ayana Johnson on Instagram at Ayana Eliza, uh, A-Y-A-N-A-E-L-I-Z-A on Instagram. You can also go to her website, ayanaelizabeth.com, and I highly suggest you do so. Because Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist. Ooh. So you know that's fun. She's yeah, also yeah. a policy she's also a policy writer. What is her focus in marine biology? Ocean policy, marine zoning, fisheries oh. management, and seafood. <laughs> so I should have just let you finish. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she's been here for a long time. Um, she's a writer. She's written a book. Um, if you need one more reason to love her, she's from Brooklyn, New York which is really cool. Um, You might know her from the Ocean Collective, um, which is an organization that she is the founder and CEO of. It's a consulting firm for conservation solutions. um, And it's all about social justice, which is really, really cool. The Ocean Collective. Cool. You might also know her from the Urban Ocean Lab, which is a think tank um, for improving climate resilience in coastal cities like New York City and Boston. That is mm-hmm. incredibly important, um, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. Um, yes. And then I already mentioned some of her areas of expertise, ocean policy, marine zoning, spatial planning, management, seafood. Those are only some. Okay. Uh, also, community engagement, philanthropic advising, strategic planning, instigating dance parties, Wait, 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 what? This is listed under her areas of expertise. She's all right. (laughs) She's a god. Um, science communication, public speaking, event curation, moderation, and facilitation. How fun is it that she threw in instigating dance parties? (laughs) I want to know how far to the top of the list that is. It is seventh from the top. And fifth and and fifth from the bottom. Just right in the middle, just sneaky. I like it. Just such a cool person. Um, and then she also just wrote a book that came out this year. Uh, it's called All We Can Save. You heard of it? No, I haven't. What's it about? Okay. Well, I mean, it's probably about, you know, All We Can Save, but. Yes, it is a collection of essays. Um, and it's all about women at the forefront of the climate movement. Okay. Um, and basically, it's 
it's what the title says. It's everything on the planet that we have the ability to save and how we can save it. Um, I kind of wish books like that were published more often than the ones that say we're doomed. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right? Whew. Um, yeah. So it was written by her and it was also edited by Catherine K. Wilkinson, who's another incredible human. Um, and it's not just a book. It's also a uh, project, an ongoing project. So you can go to allwecansave.earth, um, which I didn't know you could do a dot earth, but that's rad. All you can save um, dot earth, it's called? Yep, all we can save, all we can save, dot earth. Um, put that in the episode description. You should, yeah. So their their mission is, as I scroll down to the mission. <laughs> all right, to foster connection, care, and collaboration for change among women in climate through virtual and in-person programs when public health conditions allow. This kind of work is consistently underfunded in the climate space. It has a vital role to play in sustainable, sex successful movements for social change. Um, uh, learning and education grounded in the anthology of All We Can Save, small books committed to reading the book collectively and engaging in directed dialogue that seeds action using the resources we have created, um, and directing financial support to rolling cohorts of women climate leaders. So cool. So she's definitely really going cool to climate change like um, interpretation in general as well. Then it sounds like. yeah, you can say she's into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can also say she's a leader in it, uh, which she is um, just so cool. Um, and then she just to speak like. a little bit more about her other projects. Um, so if you want to learn more about the urban ocean lab, that's the urban ocean lab.org. I would love it if we also put that in the show notes. Urbanoceanlab.org. Um, Org. Yeah. The Urban Ocean Lab cultivates rigorous, creative, and practical climate and ocean policy for the future of coastal cities. Um, definitely into that as a liver in of coastal city. Um, oh my and god. Then Have you <laughs> ever seen that Ben Shapiro thing where he, I just said twice, I'm sorry about that, but he makes me mad. And that's three. Um, it's gonna be lots of beats. <laughs> So he was making an argument that, you know, so say sea level actually increases the, the uh, levels of these beachfront properties. Uh, wouldn't these peoples just sell their properties and move, Mr. Shapiro says? <laughs> sell the houses um, to who? But, um, yeah. I guess to sharks? I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash, Ben Shapiro. Sharks ain't got no money. They do not. Um, they might have, like, conks or something. Just, they, they... No, no. They, they don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know for a fact they don't. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, that's annoying. Um, yeah. So, the Ocean Collectives is uh, Ocean Collective without an E. So, it's O-C-E-A-N-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V dot C-O. Um, their little catchy statement statement is solutions for a healthy ocean. Um, so they're, they're a team of experts that collaborate, um, to advance ocean sustainability, um, and social justice, and they provide fresh ideas on policy, science, and commerce. So this is when we were talking, um, two weeks ago about Baranda Montgomery and, you know, the idea of recruiting cohorts of, people of color into the sciences instead of just individuals and making them a token. This is the kind of cohort that we're talking about, um, like Ocean Collective. This is a network of diverse 
researchers all working towards the same goal that already exists. And this is the kind of network you can incorporate into your existing nonprofit or environmental initiative uh, to diversify it without tokenizing anyone. You said that was oceancollective.co? I sure did. And collective right. is spelled without the E on the end because she's too cool for the E. Well, I put the E, so I got to erase that. Don't put it. <laughs> it is erased. It's not cool. The E is canceled. <laughs> um, she's just a force uh, when it comes to climate change policy and is just really, really positive and warm and mature. Just, I want to be her. Sounds like we need more people um, here. We sure do. So are you ready to hear a little bit more about the article that she was I a sure part am. of? Let's All right. It. I bet you are because we are almost an hour into this recording. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You so, say as if that doesn't happen every time. I know. Um, so as I said, U.S. natural resources and climate change concepts and approaches for management adaptation. Um, would you like and to shorten read... that title a little bit or no? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, and to retitle this article, um, I would call it, uh, Climate is Changing, Now We Must Too. <laughs> okay, I like it. That's the gist of it. Okay. Um, and she co-wrote this article with Jordan West, Suzanne Julius, Peter Karevia, Carolyn Enquist, Joshua Lawler, Brian Peterson, um, herself, and <laughs> Rebecca Shaw. Okay. And this was... And caveat, this is important. This article was published in 2009. Um, so scientifically, this is a little bit ancient history. Um, but unfortunately, it still represents a very real challenge that has not fully been addressed. So I think it's still very relevant. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So starting with the abstract, um, essentially what this article aims to do is to look at how public lands for example, our national parks, marine protected areas, how they've been managed in the past, um, whether those management strategies are still going to work now that we know the climate is changing and what needs to change about them so that we can actually continue protecting those lands and helping them thrive uh, as much as possible. So pretty important stuff. Yeah, also the exact opposite of what I thought you were going to talk about, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, when you said, um, you mentioned like the the homeless people problem, uh, the unhomed problem, I was like, that is not at all what this article focuses on, but it's also an incredibly important issue. But I don't know where you got the idea that I'd be talking about that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I saw your text that was like climate change and the other thing you said that's not coming to mind, but that's what I went on. All right, cool. Well, I still liked it. Um, Very good. Yeah. Um, all right, so as it stands now, um, US public lands and waters have been managed using strategies um, that were created 50 or more years ago, back when the climate was pretty stable and people had really no reason to think that the climate was going to change drastically in the future like it is right now. Um, and so because those strategies uh, and goals assumed stable climate conditions, suddenly they're not working now as our climate is actively changing very quickly. So in order to adapt with the changing climate and continue to be effective at preserving these ecosystems and protecting endangered species, all of that, we need to adapt as well. Now, folks have known about this for a while now. Um, they've been trying to come up with new management strategies for a few decades, 
And most of those strategies, which you and I are pretty familiar with, uh, focus on improving ecosystem resilience. So allowing them to keep existing in their present state as long as possible, basically helping them not be affected by big problems that come their way. Yeah, um, which includes like limiting habitat fragmentation as best we can and sort of mitigating uh, the effects of it where it's already happened. Yeah, doing what we can to make sure the ecosystems that we have are healthy so that they can defend themselves against attackers. It's kind of like keeping your body healthy so that when flu season comes, you're not going to catch it. Climate there change is also, flu season. Yeah, there is also a lot yeah. of science that says that the more diverse an ecosystem is, the more healthy it's going to be in general, which is a lot oh, yeah. of what we're going on too as well. Yeah, so that's a big part of improving resilience also is improving biodiversity. That is the um, the diversity of species of plants, animals, and microbes in the area. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's what most of the strategies that have been proposed focus on, is improving resilience. Um, and that is important. However, where we are now, or at least where we were in 2009, which we're now even further along, um, we have to acknowledge the reality that climate change is going to push some ecosystems or species beyond their capacity to recover. Um, and this doesn't mean that like ecosystems are just going to disappear. Like when we say coral reefs, for example, might not be able to recover, which right now they, they are able to, but so I'll use a different example. Um, let's say there's this prairie and we know that climate change is going to affect it in a way that that prairie is not going to be able to recover. That piece of land, that piece of earth is not going to disappear. It's going to transition into a different type of ecosystem, in this case, probably a desert. Right. My but a desert is not nothing. Happen. Yeah. Deserts are also full of creatures. <laughs> Deserts <laughs> are still are still an ecosystem. So we're not losing ecosystems. Um, it's just that they're going to change. Now, we still want to try to save what we can, all we can save. So preserve ecosystems that are resilient enough to stay in their current um, form, but management strategies to actually help ecosystems as they transition to what they're eventually going to become and basically ensuring that there is still biodiversity there, that it's still living, um, is a, a new strategy that hasn't had enough consideration. And that's a big part of what this article focuses on is the idea of in order to be successful moving forward into the future, in order to be successful in our management of our natural resources, we need to recognize when it makes sense to manage for resilience and when it makes sense to manage for change. Interesting. So kind of mm -hmm. discover like a general threshold to everything you just said? Yeah, basically, uh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> and gotcha. the rest of the article details very thoroughly and thoughtfully how we can do that um, based on what we know now. So a general outline before we dive in real deep. So she has laid out very thoughtfully uh, steps moving forward that will allow us to do this. So step one, assess likely current and future climate change impacts on the ecosystems in question. So whatever ecosystem you are managing, or you are a decision maker for, uh, figure out what climate change is going to change about it. How is climate change going to impact that ecosystem or those species? Step okay. two. Step two, 
review the management adaptation strategies currently available in the literature. So basically look at that peer reviewed scientific literature and see what has been suggested and what works um, for how to manage the ecosystem in, in question um, effectively. Which for step a lot three. of cases is gonna be completely overhaul it. Yes, it is. Um, step three, identify the perceived barriers um, to changing those strategies to, to adaptation and reframe them as opportunities for success. So basically, hello? Oh, no, I, I just really like how they were going to word that um, as perceived barriers, just because like, no, it's not actually a mm -hmm. thing. Nope, yeah. Um, there's There's been a lot of people saying, no, we, we can't do that because we've never done that, or we can't do that because this, this, and this. There's a lot of reasons that people have for not taking preventative climate action that when you look at the flip side of how much you're going to have to do or the barriers you're going to face, if you don't prepare, it it just makes no sense. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically the most destructive form of procrastination there is. Yeah. So basically, step three, squash some nonsense. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And then step four, make a plan or multiple plans for what to do if the goals you set become unattainable moving forward. Sorry, so make a bunch of... Yeah, have a safety net, have as many safety nets as you can, and also work together to improve your management team or your community's ability to keep adapting moving forward. So anything that's holding you up in your at in your adapting, you need to address that. Uh, and we'll go more in depth into all of that stuff as we move forward. So, well. all right. So the first thing that... Our lovely friend Ayana suggests, I'm doing it again. I'm calling her by her first name. I just want to be her friend. This is Boromba all over again. <laughs> it says, oh, I just want to be friends with you amazing, amazing scientists. Okay. Establishing baseline information. So when you're trying to preserve an ecosystem, um, boost its resilience, help it maintain what it is, um, it's very important to understand how that ecosystem should be functioning, ideally, without disturbance. Um, now, there's a problem there because currently, uh, right now, um, things have already changed quite a bit. Uh, humans have done a, made a lot of changes on this planet. So the way that ecosystems are functioning now doesn't necessarily represent the ecosystem baseline, how it should yeah. be functioning. It's kind of mm -hmm. the same reason for like a lot of scientists are really working against the clock right now to discover members of the, of the, of the animals or organisms that they want to study before they disappear in general. Yes. Um, yeah. So things are going extinct or changing faster than we can figure out they exist or figure out what they're supposed to be. Basically, a hundred um, to a thousand times what they should be right now. Yeah, exactly. So that makes it really hard to establish that ecosystem baseline. And it's really important to have an understanding of the ecosystem baseline because that's your goal, right? Um, if you're managing for resilience, your goal is to maintain that baseline. If you're managing for change, however, your goal is to move towards another baseline that would also support life. Yeah, it, um, it's kind of like mm -hmm. a lot of the conservation that goes into protecting sharks right now, which is kind of the idea that we know so little for what we're trying to do that, you know, applying a blanket standard for every shark species out there is going to get a lot of them killed because it's just not going to work. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and once again, the greatest enemy... To knowledge is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. 
<laughs> it's assuming things that we think we know. Um, so that's a barrier. Um, this ecosystem baseline is really important. We can't establish one now. So what we have to do is look back at the historical records, look at historical baselines. Um, however, historical data can be tricky um, because past scientists didn't always know what they were talking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. one problem they run into is that um, a lot of scientists in the past, when they're describing the climate of a region, they didn't yet know that vegetation contributes to climate. Um, you know, like how the reason the rainforest is so rainy is because the trees um, through the water cycle collect all of that condensation and actually make the rain. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking at past baselines when basically they didn't have all the information, the things that they predicted, the things that they tried are not the best baseline to look at. Um, another problem is that some of the historic, historic baselines are already outdated. Example, the ecosystem in question has already been changed beyond its ability to return to that baseline. Um, one example of that would be America's prairies. We just don't have them anymore. Wow. Jeez. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a uh, climate change related example. Sure, yeah. So uh, one of the nonsenses I didn't include in my article because I didn't find, uh, it, it was just a little bit too much for, for the uh, section, but there was a lot of talk back in the day of the idea that it's water vapor causing climate change, which is based on the actually true fact that water vapor can hold more heat inside of it than carbon dioxide can. But carbon yeah. dioxide is also going to stay inside the atmosphere for significantly longer. So if you're talking about a very short-lived substance being water vapor, it's not going to cause long-term climate change because it just doesn't survive for that long to be able to. Well, there you go. Just another thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so when an accurate baseline is not available, um, then already you can't you can't um, try to preserve the ecosystem because you don't know what it should look like. Um, so in those situations, you already got to start managing for change. Um, you got to look at what's changing, um, start studying, you know, figuring out what's most vulnerable in that ecosystem, what needs to protect it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the next thing that's key for assessing the likely current and future climate change impact on an ecosystem in question is monitoring. <laughs> So monitoring is something that's pretty well understood and pretty well accepted as important. Um, monitoring is exactly what it sounds like. Um, it's looking at the ecosystem <laughs> and writing down what's going on. Um, so monitoring is what we need to do to detect changes in the conditions and um, facilitate timely adaptation actions. Um, Basically, it gives us a way to gauge or understand how effective management actions are. So if right. you start to take a management action to help sharks, for example, and it turns out after five years of taking that action, there are less sharks, adjust accordingly. <laughs> right. Don't just, keep, yeah. don't just keep the ball rolling if you know that the ball is going to crash eventually. Yeah. Monitoring is really important because... Um, there's a disconnect between what you want to happen and what might actually happen because there's always things that you don't understand that are contributing factors, always. Um, 
Yes. Um, so they go further to say that um, most monitoring programs need to be designed with specific hypotheses in mind uh, and with trigger points that will initiate a policy or management reevaluation. Um, so, for example, uh, a monitoring program could be set up with predefined thresholds for species abundance and growth rate. Um, and then once that's exceeded, that would prompt a re-examination of the management objectives. So basically, all right, we're going to manage for resilience to try to keep this ecosystem healthy until 50% of the corals die off. At that point, we know we need to adjust and start manage, managing for change uh, from this coral reef ecosystem to a shallow shoal ecosystem. Okay. So again, just kind of like keep track of what your threshold should be for if you actually have to change your plan or not. Exactly. So be really specific about what you're looking for when you're monitoring um, and set basically targets for if this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. Planning. <laughs> <laughs> um, and planning with the knowledge that a lot of the things that you plan for may never happen, but that because the future is so unpredictable and there are so many things that could happen, um, the more planning we do, the better prepared we'll be. Basically casting the widest net possible. Yeah. And it's going to be less yeah. costly than what would happen in that worst case scenario. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, preventative medicine is always less expensive than... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... Another thing that needs to be done is incorporating the uncertainty into the impact assessments. So even though we have climate projections for some ecosystems, um, there are still some really complex decisions that need to be faced. Um, climate change is inherently uncertain. Change is in the world or in the word. Um, so that makes it difficult for a decision maker or a manager to translate the results of an assessment into actual action. Um, so in order to operate in this uncertainty, we need managers to basically foster a attitude of um, risk-taking, that it's okay to make take risks, it's okay to fail big, because we have to take action. We have to take action. And the world is big. There's a lot of ecosystems. There's a lot of managers. And one person's mistake, as long as we're networking and communicating, can prevent a lot of other people from making the same mistake. Yeah. 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 It, it kind of goes into the whole <laughs> open science movement, too. It's like make data yep. shareable for all so you can avoid those mistakes. And also share your mistakes because yeah. that's how we learn as a species. <laughs> it's not failing um, if you learn from it. Well, it is, but it, you, you it is, but it. it's it's worth it. Yeah, yes. it's really worth it. Um, so it's not possible to always predict the changes that will occur. It's also not possible to design experiments um, to figure out what's a mistake and what's not when we're dealing with ecosystems that are endangered, sensitive, and threatened. You can't experiment on those ecosystems. You can just try your best, and then if you fail, then you can call it an experiment. <laughs> yeah, and not that like the out yeah. the outcome like like the goal should be to fail, but the more you fail, no. the easier it is to predict what's going to happen based on the data from those failures. Yeah, and the less people around you who are preserving the same types of ecosystems around the world, the less likely they are to make those same failures. Exactly. Yes. 
Um, and so the more that people take risks, try and fail, um, the more we will understand the range of changes, the range of possibilities, and we can use that range to develop appropriate responses. So rather than focusing everyone's energy on one most likely outcome, planning for a range of outcomes. Don't put all your diversity. eggs in one basket. Yeah, diversity in responses. So improving <laughs> our resilience as scientists in addition to ecosystem resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, good stuff. All right. Moving forward to adaptation approaches. So now we're moving away from step one, assessing the likely and current, likely current and future climate change. Eco- eco- oh my God, the sentence. <laughs> it's bad. it to an acronym of sorts. Step one, we've moving past step one and we're on to step two, reviewing management adaptation strategies currently available in the literature. So this section is titled adaptation approaches. Okay, so ecological studies combined with managers' expertise, so managers being, you know, the people who make decisions on how to manage the land in national parks and marine protected areas, etc., reveal several categories of approaches for managing natural systems for resilience in the face of disturbance. Um, So um, I'm just going to keep reading this. Insights from experiences with unpredictable and extreme events, such as hurricanes, floods, pests, and disease outbreaks, can readily be applied to managing in the context of climate change. So basically, the small disasters that we've had intermittently are now going to be happening more and more. So we can look at um, how managers in the past have helped ecosystems be resilient to those small disasters and basically just scale it up to the amount of disasters that are coming. Okay. So yeah, a clear X. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that was it. Just just taking the, uh, I, we're just going to delete this part. Taking the frame ground, the frown, the groundwork. Hello. Goodbye. And then, (laughs) Just keep going. All right. Um, yeah. So this is a, that's a good starting point is a clear exposition of these approaches that have been taken to deal with all of these disasters in the past. Good starting point. Um, seven approaches are often discussed um, as resilience boosting strategies um, for adaptation management. Number one, reduce anthropogenic stresses. What does anthropogenic mean, Jared? Uh, specifically, that is Greek for man-generated, but it should just kind of mean human-generated. Uh, should it? <laughs> yeah, it should. No, yeah, no. Women are also problematic species. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it should. So, um, yeah. So, anthropogenic stresses is the stress that humans are putting on that environment. Um, reduce those. Number two, protect key ecosystem features. So, the keystones of the ecosystem. So, for example, if you're looking at the Pacific Northwest, um, a keystone species up there is the salmon. Um, they are the link between the oceans and the rainforests up there because when the salmon have their mass die off after their migration, they become the fertilizer for that ecosystem. So they're important for the vegetation, which, of course, supports all the herbivores. They're also directly preyed upon by the top predators in the area, the bears and the wolves who of course also feed on the herbivores, who feed on the vegetation, who are fed by the salmon. 
You see what I mean? Like salmon are really, really important to that ecosystem. So protecting the salmon helps protect a lot of the ecosystem. So yeah, the exactly. salmon would be a key ecosystem feature. So that's just one example. Protect yeah, key same. ecosystem features. Mm-hmm. <laughs> same thing for like coral reefs with like the elk horn and the staghorn and the brain corals being like the foundation or the keystone of coral reefs to protect. Just because, you know, if we don't have those, we don't have stony coral reefs. Exactly. All right. Three, maintain representation. What do you think this one means? Inclusivity, I would presume. Yeah, so this is kind of twofold. Um, Diverse representation in the people who are researching, but also um, maintain representation um, as in uh, be forthcoming about your research um, and what's happening. Um, Actually, wait, hold on. I might be wrong about this. Let me scroll down. Nope. Yeah, I was wrong. Okay. So representation, (laughs) sorry, involves uh, the protection of the greatest diversity of biotic and abiotic systems possible. So it basically means maintain biodiversity. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, um, diversity is also important in the people who are doing this work. As we know, diversity is always good. Indeed. Um, So maintain representation. Basically, all of the tiny little creatures that make up the ecosystem, make sure they all still have a seat at the table. Um, So even though you're protecting those key ecosystem features, also maintain as much diversity as possible. Um, Don't get pigeonholed. Okay. Number four, replicate. Managing Ah. for the continued survival of more than one example of each ecosystem or species. So you talked about this a little bit with the replication crisis, um, but basically if you're doing a really good job managing your one little coral reef atoll, don't hoard that knowledge, share it and make sure that what you're doing at your little atoll also works at the other atoll and as many atolls as possible. Does this also have to do with like sample size as well? Like the more times you do something right, the more confident you can be that it actually is the right way to do it? Yes, sir. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, number five, restore. Um, so basically take those degraded ecosystems, like for example, if a, a dam was put in that drained a reservoir, but now no one lives around that dam anymore, then you can destroy the dam and let the reservoir be natural again. Yeah, man. Yeah. Break all dams. Um, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Some dams are beaver dams, Jared. And we've already oh, established they've been through enough. <laughs> um, identify refugia. What are refugia, Jared? I love refugia. Uh, refugia are basically areas where organisms can hide from stressors uh, or things that would eat or kill them. Yeah, refuges. Mm-hmm. Apparently that's the plural of refuge. <laughs> it's refugia. <laughs> I love that word. I had no idea before I read this article, but it's a beautiful word. Uh, And then relocate organisms. Um, So that happens a lot um, in not the right way, but I'm guessing that mm -hmm. they mean like transfer them to habitats where they actually do well and do well by others. Yeah. If all of the African penguins are dying on this one island because a millionaire moved in and built a McMansion and is throwing parties every day, then take those penguins and put them on the island next door where there's no mega mansion. Yeah, um, it also yeah. happened in New Zealand with the Tuatara, which is the only member of its order left on the planet, but they're a cousin of lizards, and because of invasive mammals on the island of New Zealand, the Tuataras have kind of been relocated to islands that have not been colonized by invasive species yet, and they're doing pretty well so far. 
Excellent example. Nice work. Um, yeah, so all of these techniques that I just listed, the seven of them, involve techniques that enhance the system's resilience to climate change. And ultimately, these approaches contribute to the resilience of an ecosystem, whether at the scale of an individual protected unit, like one animal, <laughs> or at the scale of regional or national systems, like the Gulf Stream. So um, basically, everything in the literature falls into one of those seven categories. Those are the six management systems reviewed. Um, however, um, they make a point of noting that these strategies um, are approaches and options, but not necessarily recommendations um, because the efficacy of many of these strategies has yet to be fully tested and very much depends on the specifics of the place ecosystem project design Etc. So that goes takes us back to these are things to try, but we're not guaranteeing that they will work. But please try them because that's the only way we'll know if they will work. Right. That's how science works. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just to briefly review those things again, reduce anthropogenic stresses. Um, get the people out of it. Maintain <laughs> representation. Make sure there's as much biodiversity and abiotic diversity. So diversity in terrain. So basically don't like plow down undersea canyons because you don't see the point. Like there's a point. <laughs> wild uh, native plants in New York for the love of God. Absolutely. Yeah. So as much biodiversity and abiotic diversity as possible, um, make sure that if you have the ability to create a new protected area, that it's not just one facet of an ecosystem, but the whole ecosystem um, because basically ecosystems are complicated. They're all interconnected. Everything is connected. Um, and if you look at migrating birds, for example, if you're trying to protect that, a species of migrating bird, um, they use a really diverse array of habitats. So you want to protect all of those habitats, not just one of them. Indeed. Cause what if yeah. you protect, uh, where they're coming, but not where they're going? Exactly. Um, they're not going to get where they're going to go if where they're going to go is not there. Um, <laughs> replicate. Um, yeah. Uh, managing for the continued survival of more than one example of each ecosystem. So increasing redundancy as a form of insurance against unpredict un the unpredictable nature of climate change. Um, so marine protected areas provide a really good example of this. Um, replication is used a lot in marine protected areas as a way to spread risk. If you're protecting, for example, two marine protected areas nearby each other with similar things living there, if one of them gets hit by a hurricane and the other one doesn't, it's good that you had that other one because that other one has a bunch of baby fish that can then grow up and swim over to the one that got destroyed and repopulate it. So kind of like the human equivalent of diversifying your stock portfolio. Yep. Kind exactly. Of, right? Um, yes. That's <laughs> a really good example. <laughs> um, and then of course, restore. Um, so when things are destroyed, try to, try to, uh, restore them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> using the definition or the word in the definition. Um, but yeah, a big example of this is restoring wetlands and natural floodplains, um, because that actually increases the resilience to floods. Indeed. Um, identify refugia. The, um, wolves in Yellowstone. Yes, exactly. Uh, identify refugia and relocate organisms. So find those little safe havens um, that are safer from climate change than other areas and put organisms there. 
um, the human facilitated transplantation of organisms from one location to another in order to bypass a barrier like an urban area or a city um, is also referred to as assisted colonization or assisted migration. And that kind of transplantation um, can preserve system-wide representation of species that would not otherwise be able to overcome those barriers. So kind of like wildlife corridors or the under highway bridges and stuff? Yeah, or the bucket brigade. So you take the salamanders ah. who spawned in their vernal pool and you put them in buckets and you carry them over the highway to where they're going so that they don't have to cross the highway because they can't. They're tiny salamanders. Okay, so more of like an active involvement. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So those are the strategies that are in place. Um, the bucket of tricks you can reach into um, to help manage the ecosystem you're trying to protect. Um, now let's talk a little bit more about how management is going to have to adapt moving forward, also known as adaptive management. Whoop. So adaptive management is an iterative process in which management actions are followed by targeted monitoring, the results of which inform changes in management actions. Basically, you take an action, you carefully look at how that action is affecting the thing, and then you adjust accordingly. Plan That's your cyclical. approach to the situation that mm -hmm. it entails. Be like, I really want to do this thing. All right, I'm going to try it. All right. Was I able to do the thing? Halfway. Okay. Let's change it to try to get the other half. All right. Let's do it. Okay. With the changed plan, was I able to do the thing? 75% of the thing. Great. Let's come up with, you know, and, and so on and so forth. You gotta work on your um, class, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, so, yeah. Constant evaluation, basically. Um, like yeah. So it emphasizes managing based on observation. It emphasizes continuous learning. And in doing so, provides a means for addressing varying degrees of uncertainty in our knowledge of current and future climate change impacts. Um, pretty cool stuff. And then they mentioned an example that I wanted to do more research on, but didn't get the chance to, which um, it said examples include the flood release experiment in the Grand Canyon in 2008. What? what? I was like, the what? what? What the hell is that? The what now? Um, and all I found is releasing water from a dam allows for the application of highly regulated experimental treatments and assessments of effects. So I guess they did so an they experiment. So they released a bunch of water into the Grand Canyon. I don't know, because I didn't have the time to look at it. But in, listeners, if you're interested, Google Grand Canyon um, flood release experiment 2008. <laughs> oh, boy. This is spooky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to identifying perceived barriers and reframing them as opportunities for success. Ah. Yeah. So, although there may be many theoretically possible adaptation strategies, um, a really important consideration for the decision makers is whether or not they're actually feasible. Um, so factors that can limit or, or enhance the manager's ability um, to use those options um, need to be assessed. And those obstacles can be technical, they can be economic, they can be social, um, and they can also be, of course, political. Um, but you have to understand the barrier before you can figure out how to overcome the barrier. Um, we can't overcome anything until we acknowledge it. So we have to look at those barriers, 
and then use them as a jumping off point for creative thinking on how that barrier can be used to actually um, change the outcome. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I got it. Keep going. Okay, cool. Um, so for example, if the barrier is legislation or a regulation, um, federal land and water managers can actually use existing legislative tools um, by applying traditional features in non-traditional ways. So if your barrier is in legislation, look at all of the other legislation around and find a loophole. <laughs> oh, so you still law yeah, against itself. Exactly. Um, if the barrier is in management policies and procedures, well, ding, 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 you're the manager. <laughs> make your own policy and procedure change it yeah um so developing climate change adaptation strategies should be a part of all planning action exercises um at every level um including the collaborative level with other managers um and that uh would encourage managers in the same geographical area to coordinate um so some existing management plans in an area may already be set up for climate adaptation. So networking more gives you an opportunity to look at your neighbors nearby, see what they're working on and see if that would work for you as well. So a good example is the forest services adaptation of um, the early detection rapid response strategy for invasive species. If you look at that, that same thinking could be translated to an early detection or rapid response management approach to climate impacts. Oh. Um, yeah. So there's actually an equivalent to this in evolutionary biology. It's called an exaptation, which is basically an adaptation that suddenly was found to serve another use, uh, kind of like feathers being used for other things and then suddenly finding a use as flight. Nice. Yeah, exactly. Um, it also means that if you are not the person actively managing the land, but you work around it, um, if you're looking at the person who is your decision maker, and you're seeing a barrier of they don't want to make adaptive change, look at the organizations nearby, try to find examples of them making adaptive change and bring that to your manager. Cool. I like it. More diversifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, <clears throat> if your barrier is human or financial capital, um, so that is you don't have enough money or you don't have enough staff or your staff doesn't have enough capacity. Um, well, that's a big problem, but guess what? There's a bunch of stuff you can do to fix it. Um, one big one is making sure that staff members not only feel valued, but also empowered by their institutions. Um, and this is really key because people who work in conservation often begin their careers as personally, like passionate stewards of natural resources, like they're ocean lovers or they, you know, are birders. They're people who already really, really care and really want to make a difference. And so it's really important that these institutions value that and empower those people to make as much of a difference as they possibly can. So not poo-pooing people's energy um, just because the problem is going to be hard or maybe harder than they expected. Okay, yeah, cut some people some slack and give them credit when they deserve it. That, but uh, make sure that all of the staff members at your institution understand how important climate resilience is 
and how important it is to the institution that they care about it and are willing to do something about it. And if they have something to say or something they want to try, listen to them. So we're going to go with your explanation there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the threat of climate change is, you know, compounding management challenges. Um, So that makes it really important to cultivate passion um, because people are going to burn out. And if passion is coming through the door, you got to You got to keep that fire going, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so existing employees um, should be trained um, or given specialist positions to attack climate change issues within the context of their already current jobs. So, for example, at a public aquarium, you can take the people who are working at the front desk and also train them on how to have climate change conversations, because if they're working, at the front desk of the public aquarium, they probably came into that job because they care about ocean animals, even though the job itself is not technically doing anything to address climate change. It could be. Exactly. If that passion is there, empower it, no matter what position that employee is in. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Um, good stuff. Um, yeah. And then also what I was talking about before um, is human resource policies should be supportive of employees who take risks, acknowledge that risks sometimes lead to mistakes, but also acknowledge that mistakes lead to learning. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> safe Every to fail policies. card is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and workplaces need uh, in quotations, safe to fail policies in which the system can recover without irreversible damage, either to natural or human resources. Um, kind of like what the yeah. stock market didn't do in 2008. Yeah. So we can learn from that mistake about learning from mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if, if, yeah, I'm not going to make more metaphors about that. One. That's a good one. Um, and then if the barrier to moving forward is a lack of information or a lack of scientific research, um, the solution to that is collaboration. Find people who are willing to do that research. Um, And then share the data. Exactly. Um, So, wow, this keeps going. It's so good, but it's long. (laughs) So if if anyone needs to take a bathroom break, um, you can pause it because it's a podcast. (laughs) All right. So um, moving forward uh, to advancing the nation's capability to adapt. So this goes to that fourth step, making a plan for what to do if all of the plans you're making now don't work out. Uh, fail um, for your fail safes. Exactly. Even if actions are taking today to limit emissions, um, shift in management and policies are still going to be necessary because the concentration of heat trapping gases that are already there is enough to require a lot of adaptation actions. Ecosystem responses to increasing concentrations are likely to be unusually fast, large, and nonlinear in character. In other words, things are going to get real weird and real bad real fast in places we did not expect. And more areas are becoming vulnerable to climate change um, because of anthropogenic constraints. Um, For example, as we're building highways through more and more ecosystems and urbanization expanding our, you know, our houses further and further into the wilderness, um, we're creating more and more ecosystems that are more vulnerable to climate change. So given these realities, managers, um, they're going to find situations where these 
adaptation strategies that they set are no longer relevant. And that's going to require fundamental shifts in how those ecosystems are managed. They're not only going to have to shift their management strategies, but their management goals. And in order to do that, um, there's going to need to be fundamental shifts in policies at the regional, national, and international scales. So basically, in order to set the U.S. up for success, set U.S. scientists and U.S. ecosystem managers up for success, we need right now to employ policies that allow rapid adaptation and rapid change. So no more of these 15-year grants with a really, really specific outcome in mind. It needs to be more open-ended in order to allow scientists to do what they need to do. Yeah. Also invest heavily in things like environmental education to make the public aware of the fact that these things are happening. Uh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Um, so we need management at appropriate scales, not necessarily the scales of convenience or tradition. So for example, if you're trying to preserve a keystone species like salmon, you can't just preserve the areas of their migration that are convenient to preserve. You need to preserve the entire migration area, even if that's inconvenient. Um, we need increased collaboration among agencies. We've talked about that a lot. We need all of these organizations, the national parks, all of them to collaborate, share information, share what's working, share what's not. We need rational approaches for establishing priorities and applying triage. Um, do you know what triage is? Kind of like first aid type stuff? Or is that not? I mean, it is related to, to that. A triage center is the place where the people in the worst shape get sent, and then the triage center decides what they can save, what they can what they can do. So triage is like, all right, this person's been shot all over their body, uh, but we can save their life if we cut off their leg. Interesting. For some reason, when I hear the word triage, it comes to mind of like a nurse or doctor just wearing like fake black plastic gloves for some reason, but... That's just where my head went. Anyway. All right. I mean, I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically that means we need to accept that in order to save as much as we can, um, we need to accept that there's going to be some losses. And with the resources that management organizations have, if they can't get enough resources to save everything in time, they're going to have to make decisions about what's the most important to save. So they need to prepare for that. They need to establish priorities now of what they're going to save if this happens, what they're going to save if this happens, what they're going to save if that happens, so that when it happens, they don't have to make that decision in a moment of panic. Yeah, basically like the faster we plan and the better we plan and the further in the, uh, into mm -hmm. the future we plan, the easier it will be to deal with these changes as they happen. Exactly. Um, looking away from the problem and pretending it doesn't exist is going to make the problem much more hard to deal with when it gets here, whereas looking as closely as possible at the problem as it looms on the horizon and trying to predict everything that might possibly happen is going to pre prepare us better. <laughs> even though like I am definitely not doing with my car right now. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much like I don't do with my life. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> um, management needs to take into account the expectation of ecosystem change. Um, so if you need to look at what management strategies and goals you have in place. And if they depend on everything staying the same, you need to throw them out and make new ones. Love it. Yeah. Managing for change, which is um, 
what you need to do once you realize that you need to throw out what you already have um, is a little bit brutal. Um, it requires a lot of anticipatory thinking. Um, and it means that you have to manage losing the ecosystem that you've been protecting for decades and manage its transition into a completely other thing that you might not understand and that you might need to pull in collaborators from different ecosystems to help you understand. Um, so, so kind of like understanding that it's going to happen in a certain extent, whatever we do. So, you know, you best be prepared to deal with what comes next. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that could involve, um, using species properly suited to the expected future climate, uh, when revegetation and silviculture are used. Um, so like, for example, in Tahoe national forest, managing for change may mean that the white fir would be favored over the red fir. Pines would be preferentially harvested at high elevations over fir, and species would be shifted upslope within expanded seed transfer guides. Huh? Yeah, I don't understand that much either because I don't know about trees. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be honest; that meant very little to me. <laughs> but that's the uh, that's the example that was provided. Um, yeah. <laughs> Damn it! Hold on, let me look closer at that. Managing for change may mean that white fur would be favored over red fur. Okay. So, like, we're going to lose one of the furs, but we're still oh, going to have one okay. fur. Okay, so... Or something like that. They're going to focus on trying to protect the white fur, because the red fur, I guess, is not going to do well. And then, in order to protect the furs, they're going to instead harvest pines, so that... um, So that they're not cutting down the furs... And then species would be slifted upslope with an expanded seed transfer guides. So they're going to keep planting more furs upslope where it's colder. I don't know. I don't know anything about the Tahoe National Forest. Why did I bring this up? I'm following in my <laughs> head, but I, I, I don't know if you just want to keep going or not. Yeah, I'm just going to keep going. I thought I was following myself, but I just, I don't, this is one well, of those situations sounds... where I'm talking about something I know nothing about. So it, I don't know. It's... It sounds to me like they're just kind of talking about, like, the multiple things that they're having to do at the same time. So, like, at the same time as they're them having to make a choice about which fur to save, mm -hmm. they also have to stop doing furs in general and move on to a even more resilient tree. Kind of like the cogs in the conservation machine. Perhaps. Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. I like that. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Here's another example. I'm scrolling down. All right. For example, as illustrated poignantly in estuaries. It is impractical to attempt to keep ecosystem boundaries static. After a flood, there is often intense pressure to restore the pre-flooding state. To ensure sound management responses, guidelines for scenarios under which restoration and rebuilding should occur or be abandoned could be established in advance of disturbances. In this sense, disturbances could become opportunities for managing towards a distribution of human population and infrastructure that is more realistic given a changing climate. So I really like this one. Um, this one makes sense to me because it has to do with water and that's where I know what I'm talking about. So estuaries is where a river meets the ocean. Um, and they say it's impractical to keep the ecosystem boundaries static. So if you're looking at the boundary between the water and the land right now, um, it is not realistic to try to keep them exactly where they are because with sea level rise and flooding, um, they're going to be changing. So 
after a big flood occurs, what people want the most is to go back to normal. However, the best way to preemptively counteract that is make sure, like start right now rebuilding and making a new normal that actually can be reestablished. So instead of keeping building closer and closer to the borders of the river, make zoning regulations now that put new development outside of the flooding zone so that when flooding does happen and destroys what's already too close to the river, people aren't going to try to go back there because things are already moving away from there. So basically not putting a bunch of wasted effort into something that's in all likelihood going to be ruined again. Yeah, it's like all of these people building fancy new houses right next to the beach. Don't do that, basically. No, um, don't do that. Make laws now so that people cannot do that, so that when those rich, powerful people lose their new big fancy homes because of climate change, the top priority doesn't become giving those rich, fancy people their rich, fancy homes back, which it will if you allow them... If you allow them to build the rich, fancy home in the wrong place in the first place, you're going to have a problem in the future. So make laws now to make sure no rich, fancy people are building things in stupid places so that we don't have to rebuild things in stupid places again later. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe like everyone just stopped building homes for a while. Like we have plenty. Well. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Going to one of those. Like we don't I need mean... more houses in this country. Honestly, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from there. There's a lot of houses, um, mm -hmm. although restoring restoring abandoned houses is a whole thing. This is true. Um, it can be dangerous, but how about, you know, we're not management experts, but for, for <laughs> don't build a big house. If you already have a house, don't build another one, and definitely don't build it in a place where a house has never been. If you have oh. the money to build a house, how about knock down a shitty house and build one there? <laughs> Also, as someone who makes deliveries for Amazon, stop making your driveways so damn long for no reason. Like, sometimes I gotta get out of my car and walk, and it wastes time. There's no need for your driveway to be that long, sir. But alas. <laughs> <laughs> my family home's driveway is a half a mile long. <laughs> I despise that. I, don't, I want to go back to where I did not know that. I, I didn't build it. And I wouldn't. I live in a, in a 10 by 10 box on top of 12 other 10 by 10 boxes. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in summary, because I have been rambling for such a long time over this beautiful article, while there is an immediate need to address managing for change, that does not mean that managing for resilience will no longer be a useful concept. Resilience strategies can be used to forestall losses and slow the approach to thresholds thereby buying time for land and water managers to plan how best to manage upcoming tradition transitions. So, yeah. Furthermore, after a given ecosystem shift has occurred, the goal for management of the new system state will again be resilience. Thus, successful resort management under climate change will require flexibility on the part of managers and decision makers in cycling between managing for resilience and managing for change. I like it. Nice and yeah. succinct. There we go. So that is the lengthy but very informative U.S. Natural Resources and Climate Change Concepts and Approaches for Management Adaptation. And of course, the big takeaway is things are changing fast and we need to change everything so that we can adapt. Yeah. Cool. No more trying to, no more, let's go back to normal. No more, 
well, this is the way it's always been done. No more, I like things to stay the same, because they're not gonna. Same's not working, friends. Yeah. Um, and once again, if you want to look at more of Ayana Elizabeth's work, sorry, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson's work, check out Ayana Eliza. <laughs> I know, I did better. Check out Ayana Eliza on Instagram. Check out her book, All We Can Save, and check out her two foundations, The Ocean Collective and The Urban Ocean Lab. And if you liked this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. Um, and if we you have any, facts. yeah, oh, we will, we will. But if you have anything you'd like to co- us to cover in the future, um, any topics or scientists or any suggestions, either for stuff you want us to cover or for things you think we got wrong, um, please email us. Uh, we would love to hear from any and all of you. And our email is podcast at scienceinpictures.com. So we really look forward to hearing from you. Uh, any feedback is good feedback. Um, like yes, I said at the beginning, we're just a baby little seed of a podcast and we're trying to grow. Um, we need our little fungus partner. We do. Our, will you be our, <laughs> will you be our fungal network that allows our roots to grow? We hope you will be. <laughs> I'm still um, reading the fungus book if you hadn't <laughs> been able to tell that. That's really, I can't wait to borrow it from you. I'm still waiting for um, my uh, lessons from plants. Lessons from lessons plants. plants. i'm still waiting for that one to come in the mail um but i'm excited about it i also just ordered braiding sweetgrass i keep seeing that coming up on my amazon recommendations Mm -hmm. same and so i finally ordered it and i'll let you know how what i think but this is not a book review podcast um (laughs) this is the part of the podcast where we tell you some fun things that we learned this week so jared what did you learn this week unrelated to our article um, I learned, uh, this is actually insane. Um, there is, so in fungi, there are a lot, or there can be a lot of different, what are called mating types, uh, which are kind of like the fungal equivalent of sexes. Um, mm. there is, uh, one fungus, uh, by the name of Schizophyllum commune, uh, that has more than 23,000 different mating types. They can't all mate with each other. Some can only specifically mate with one another, but this is all inside the same species. 23,000 plus mating types. Wow. That's like... Yeah. Oh my God, that's so cool. That's so... Fungi just continue to be everything I wish the human race was. (laughs) (laughs) Just unlimited possibilities. No boxes. They can be whatever they want. Gosh, I love it so much. Imagine sure. having 23,000 accepted genders. Cannot even comprehend. Oh, with love. That's really cool. Yeah, man. That's really, really What's... cool. What do you got for me? And what did I learn this week? So glad you asked. Um... <laughs> <laughs> As she I continues to stall for this. time. <laughs> I, I had something for this at the beginning, and now I'm forgetting what I learned. Oh, Goodness, I should have written it down. What did you I want learn? One more for me while you're uh, thinking. I would love one. Um, another fungus fun fact: uh, there is a certain uh, parasitic species of fungus that targets only periodical cicadas, the ones that live for thirteen and seventeen years. Um, mm. And basically, what they do is they uh, take over a cicada's body, uh, in part using psilocybin, which no one understands how the psilocybin actually helps to brainwash them, but they use it. 
Um, hmm. They basically melt the back end of the cicada abdomen and turn them into a flying spore factory. Oh my gosh. I don't have anything that can compete with your with your fungus facts. So you know what? Those are our two fun facts for this week. <laughs> I brought nothing to the table. Let it be known. We'll <laughs> <laughs> be fine for next week. Yeah, I mean, here's here's a fun fact. Uh, blue whales are technically the loudest creature on Earth, and if they were able to produce sound above the water, if you were right next to them, it would blow your eardrums out. I learned that a long time ago, but there's a fun fact. Maybe it's new to you. <laughs> that is a fun fact. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I'm full of fun facts. I just couldn't think of a new one. So there, that's mine for this I one. have always wondered what it would be like to get like echolocated at by like a full-size sperm whale. Like, would you be able to feel that? And what would it feel like? Uh, it would probably feel like if you went into like a Dolby movie theater and then played a bunch of clicking noises and had them at the subwoofers behind your back. So it'd be like really loud clicking and then you'd feel a rumble with the click. I'd also be crapping my pants because I would be face to face with a sperm whale, but, uh, yep. Wouldn't that be scary? No. (laughs) I'm just thinking about their tiny mouth and big body and the fact that I could still fit in that tiny mouth and just no. Yeah, I, I wouldn't really want to encounter one in the water. Never. Um, unless it was one of those times when they're doing that really cute thing where they all sleep vertically. You think that's cute? I think that's horrifying. Really? I think it's it, so cute. Oh my god, Jared, are whales your birds? Yeah. <laughs> Have I never told you this? I'm terrified of whales. Like, I, I, you I, are? Respect, I respect the hell out of them, but I never want to see one in person. Like, Oh ever. my god, that's hilarious. Literally last week, I pivoted from birds to whales because i'm afraid of birds you remember that yep i do and i didn't say anything because in my head i was like they're too big but i was like not gonna say it out loud wow oh my goodness like i would much rather come face to face with a sperm whale than an albatross see in the same way that what i just said is absurd to you i just can't comprehend what you just said to me (laughs) that would be so cool Here's what I learned this week, listeners. Jared's afraid of whales. Tell your friends. <laughs> they are. I love you. Stay away from me, please. And that's how I feel about birds. So I get it. Totally get it. All right. All right. We are visitors, almost at two hours with this. We are. Uh, Jared has quite a bit of editing ahead of him. And my dear listeners, whatever you're hearing now, please know that like half of it has been cut because <laughs> we were we were feeling some sort of way this week but thank you very much for listening we hope to see you next week uh, where we feature another black scientist and the amazing work that they're doing and we are going to attempt with all of our might to take the headache out of their research for you so we hope you show up and uh yeah that's it so uh i guess uh it's goodbye all right guys right? like rate and subscribe wherever you can do that physically and uh thanks for listening okay bye bye